Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast. She's a, a writer, Arthur, and has a very famous father, Miss Kelly Carlin. Welcome to the Unimpressed Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we got to talk to people. I witnessed the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. If you're needing therapy and and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash unimpressed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash unimpressed podcast. How are you doing today, Kelly? I'm doing good, John. I'm doing great today. So before we started recording this, I said this is going to be a, a very interesting conversation because it says you're a deep thinker. Usually I try not to do a lot of studying of the person, but I saw a few things that stood out to me in this deal of being a Zen Buddhism practitioner. Where did that come from? And and if you don't, if, he, if you're listening out there and you're a little bit younger, uh, Kelly's father is George, famous comedian, George Carlin. So I think this is a very interesting tie-in. Where does a person's foundation come from? And what was the thought process of being involved with Buddhism? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I didn't grow up in a traditional religious household. Both my parents were very curious and spiritual seekers. Um, So I was always invited to kind of think philosophically about the world. I was born in 63. So I was, you know, a kid during the 60s and then a teens during the 70s. And and both of my parents kind of dabbled in a lot of different kind of spiritual paths and curiosity. And my dad talked 
openly about dabbling in <laughs> psychedelics. Uh, psychedelics can lead you to a, they call a unitive state of mind where you are at one with everything. And he, he would talk about that a little bit with me. He was also a fan of some thinkers like uh, Alan Watts and people like that. Alan Watts was a person who talked a lot about Buddhism and Zen. And so it was always kind of in the field around me and, and then growing up you know, a lot of spiritual seeking going on here. And I was always fascinated by Buddhism. And then I ended up actively stepped into it after my mom died. It was something I'd always, I'd always wanted to go to a Buddhist retreat and try meditation and sitting and silence and mindfulness and all that stuff. And, uh, and ended up going to retreat a few months after she died in 97. Yeah. And it was really powerful for me and ended up working with some teachers uh, for about 10 years and still do the practice on my own. And kind of my own way. I, I don't go to many retreats anymore, but you know, I, fo I follow the philosophy of it and it's really nothing to believe in. It's more about practices and a ways of kind of looking at our interconnectedness in the world. And it's about working with the difference between working with your personality and your e quote unquote ego and that thing that which is not your ego, which is kind of a, a bigger wider view of, of looking at the world. So I find it to be a very helpful path and a helpful philosophy to keep me grounded and keep me unattached to the bullshit in the world. I got my Reiki license naturally. So this comes to a question of understanding some of the narratives that your father had being a very deep thinker. Did he find himself before he found a religious outlet like Buddhism? You know, did you find yourself before a religious outlet like Buddhism? Do you understand I think, what I mean? Because I think a lot of people... I think we're always finding ourselves every day. I don't think there's yeah. an end state. I don't think you find yourself and then something's done. We are a never-ending onion that we are peeling. Uh, I think Buddhism helped shape my understanding of how to see the world and kind of understand my own personal cosmology and my place in the cosmos. I think Buddhism was a step along the way of figuring out who I am, but I think that question is a is a lifetime question. I think on our deathbed we may still be asking that question of who we are and, and have we found ourselves. I guess what I'm saying is that this thought process that you have and this narrative that you have, you know, if that comes from an authentic place, which it sounds like it it did, instead of being involved with something and it may not be off is authentic. And the reason I say that is because I got my Reiki practitioner's license because of natural abilities I had, but I never practiced it specifically. Were these boxes right, created to give people who find themselves and may have a different thought process about life a place to, to go? And then they try to fit you, you know, because sometimes they try to fit you in that narrative. Yeah. And I started thinking about that. I don't know if I really fit in the Reiki narrative, but I, I do naturally what Reiki does. Does that make yeah. sense? I Yeah, I think both uh, my study of Zen Buddhism and my study of Jungian depth psychology are two things that absolutely I have used to to define how I feel like I'm already in the world. I think we're I think we're always looking for to see if any other humans experience life the way we do, and if they do, have they explained it already? Have they have they talked about their experience of it? Um, does it feel like it aligns with what we're experiencing already. I, I mean, I think that's what seekers do. Seekers are seeking to find themselves, you know, reflected back to them. 
in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, at least the part, you know, use the term narrative to kind of construct some understanding, some intellectual understanding that helps us fit, feel like we fit into the world. And um, I think for me, you know, I had a lot of mental health issues in my 20s, my teens in my 20s. And I think stepping into, you know, part of the seeking was to relieve the suffering of that to begin with. It wasn't really looking for a cosmology. I was trying to find a way to not feel so anxious and depressed and confused all the time in my life. And I think Buddhism taught me a way to look at my thoughts and my feelings and to start to detach from them, which does, it's, you know, it's kind of what cognitive behavioral therapy does for you too. So it was the original cognitive behavioral therapy 2,500 years ago, you know, putting this, the unitive states and the, and all of that kind of uh, experience aside. But um, yeah, and as far as my dad, I mean, I, I don't know, I can't really speak for my dad's process and his own seeking. Um, I think, you know, but I think he too was always trying to make sense of the world and make sense of his place in, in the cosmos and, and you know, find his own own version of that. And, and he eventually did and, and shared it and shared it a lot on stage. It was the way he, uh, the way he viewed the world. And then you just said something about when you were in your teens, you said depression and so forth. If you look at the way your dad viewed the world, you look at your foundation, there's there's something to that, right? And I think sometimes highly sensitive people who are mostly, a lot of times are creatives and someone like you being a kid and not knowing what the world was about. And your mind being a very powerful thing, if you're a highly sensitive person. Yeah, which I am. So when you're a kid and you're experiencing all these high emotions, yeah, emotions is the juggernaut of the universe. However, you think of yourself dealing with these high sensitivities, Mm -hmm. right, could create mental illness mindset based on what you're seeing in a Western community. But I think most of my mental illness or my depression and anxiety came from the fact that my parents were both addicts and there was a lot of chaos in my household growing up. My mom didn't get sober until I was 12 and there was a lot of, a lot of chaos and my dad was gone a lot. He was on the road a lot. So, you know, people who know my story, you know, who've read my book or saw my solo show or even watched the documentary uh, that's out on HBO right now, George Carlin's American Dream. You know, I talk openly about all this stuff and that does take a huge toll on a kid. And I, I am a highly sensitive kid and it takes even more of a toll on a highly sensitive kid for sure. I think more about where my place in the world is. I think that comes about more naturally through adolescence and high school in our 20s when we're actually moving out into the world and trying to figure out our identity. And of course, having parents who were my dad for sure, and, and my mom for the most part, my mom came from a very traditional background, but um, who were, you know, really people who were outside of the norm, you know, and stood outside and, and certainly judged the world as it was and keen observers of it. You know, it's hard to find your place in the world when you're, when you're not quite sure the world offers itself the way it does, both as far as, you know, rationality and that kind of part of the Western world, but also modernism through capitalism and, and consumerism and all that kind of stuff. So I do think it takes, and even though my dad was a very rational man, uh, but very much rejecting of modern construction of modern world too, especially around capitalism and wealth and greed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it takes time for you to figure out your place. And especially when you have a parent who is kind of a voice of a generation and people revere his positions and his point of views, 
you know, it's kind of, it's a shadow. You, you grow up in the shadow of that and you takes, mm -hmm. it takes a longer time to figure out who you are and what do you believe and, you know, what's your own inner compass in some way. And, um, I mean, it takes time anyway in a lifetime to do that, but it can mm -hmm. be a little more challenging when there's a lot of, when there's this figure in your life that people tend to worship. Do you think you could have limited yourself based on your dad's position? I think it's it's all ultimately a construct. We all limit ourselves. It's all just a construct yeah. in our head about who we are and what we're capable of. So of course, and we do that in order to stay safe in the world and to feel like we are not going to, you know, be eaten by the tigers and the lions and the bears. So it's all a construct in the end. Like, what are you thinking about at that time when you're trying to make yourself someone, you know, this identity in the world? What are you thinking about having someone like this who is your father? What is that? What does that look like for you? That's a, a huge question. Uh, there, I was dealing with a lot of different things. I was dealing with my own addictions. I was in a bad marriage in my 20s. I was just trying to survive every day. I had panic attack syndrome. Um, I didn't really think about my dad or his position. He was just my dad. And I just kind of lived in the shadow of it. It was all very unconscious for me. Um, it really wasn't until my 30s and I'd left my first husband and had tried, you know, was starting to kind of get my life together. Like most people do in their 20s. I kind of did that in my 30s. And, you know, I think I always felt the pressure of having to maneuver around my dad's fame and also having to m maneuver around the pressures in our relationship with each other, expectations and non-expectations and kind of feeling, you know, I, I always felt very ungrounded. It took me many years to feel grounded. I think that's what the Buddhism ultimately gave me was introduced me to actually being in my body, which took me a long time to do. So, and it really it hasn't been since his death, which will be 15 years in June, that I really started to wrestle with my place under the sun and in the light and in the shadow. And that's why I ended up doing a solo show and writing my memoir, because that was really what that was about, was that dance that I did with him, wanting to please him when I'm an only child, you know, being a daughter, um, wanting to take care of him, you know, because of the very codependent dynamic my mom and dad and I had with each other. So wanting to take care emotionally with him. And so limiting myself a lot in what I felt free to say or do, you know, there was always a lane I was okay to be in, but I, I never ventured outside of it. And I think that's the way most people are, is we're kind of taught by our family of origins, the rules, or we, we teach ourselves the rules. We decide them at age four, five, or six, what's possible, what's not possible, what's tolerable, what's not. And then we have to learn at a certain age when we get sick and tired of those rules running us to break them and to dismantle them and disassemble them and try something different. And, you know, I'm 59 right now. I'm, I'm still dissembling some of those rules. I mean, I think we are daily. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's um, my says, you know, it's a big onion and, you know, the, we're always peeling the onion. And the question always is, how big is the onion? And it's like, I think the onion goes on forever. What is your lineage? What's the family's lineage? Uh, you mean ancestry? Yes. My dad's grandfather was born in Ireland, so I'm Irish on my father's side. And my grandmother on my dad's side, her parents were born in Ireland, so I'm second generation American through my grandfather. And then my mom's side is Scotch English, but it looks like a lot of them came over very early, um, even before like 1776. So, you know, I, 
they go way back. So basically the British Isles are, are my heritage. I'm sure in my mom's lineage, I've got a little German and probably a little French too, but mostly Irish and Scotch English. You know, we're all supposed to be built spiritually the same way. And I think that the reason I asked that question is I think that bloodline has a lot to do with that. I don't think that the, if you have a very strong bloodline, then these assets or abilities will carry through the family. And I think a lot of those things where people are disconnected from the divine and so forth, I think a lot of people have been diluted based on their environment, based on their foods, you know, and that's been perpetuated over time where people kind of lose touch of feeling of who, what a human being should be in a way some, to some extent. Because just listening to those, your narrative, your dad's narrative, you know, I think there's a lot of high intelligence uh, there that uh, comes from somewhere. And yeah. the source is probably pretty good. I think it's a little of everything, right? It's a little nurture. It's a little nature. It's a little uh, DNA. It's a little, you know, whatever that is. Um, sure. You know, the fact that we're all here, our ancestors did something right. Yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be here, you know, and as far as the spiritual path and my mom was very, very she was very in tune. She was also a highly sensitive person and was very empath empathic and was really very much a light source. Whereas my dad, you know, grew up in Catholicism and stuff like that. And my dad was very much stuck in his head. He wasn't very embodied in his body. So, but, but he was a seeker. He was an intellectual seeker um, and was always fascinated by my ability to practice Buddhism or study the things like the more esoteric things I studied. I think he was always very curious about that, but really could never make the, the leap over into without LSD, basically <laughs> make the leap over into that, into being able to really be inside the resonant field and to be at one with the numinosity and the divine or whatever you call that, right? Um, unitive states or so many different ways to call that. Part of my training in my Jungian psychology too is working with the deep imagination and around dreams, uh, sleeping dreams and waking dreams and, and that kind of trance states and things like that. So I just, every year I become more and more accustomed to tuning into and really trusting the field. I am also a life coach and I work with clients. And so I really trust when an image drops in or a word or a song or, or any kind of sensory experience where I can hand it to the client and say, you know, I've decided that, you know, I'll say something like, well, this might be crazy, but I just got this, you know, sense of like a, a lake or something, you know, whatever the image is, you know, does that resonate to you, mean anything for you? And, you know, and most of the time they'll, you know, it is some sort of resonant thing, you know, morphic field that uh, Rupert Sheldrake talks about. But yeah, I think it's a very fascinating thing. And I think my dad was always a little jealous that I kind of was pursuing that and had kind of more free access to that kind of stuff. He was so compartmentalized and such a workaholic that he didn't really have the time to spend practicing, you know, and really, and, and really being inside those spaces and letting himself kind of disappear, right? Your boundaries disappear. Uh, I think for him, that was challenging. Based on what he, some of his thought, thought processes that he said on stage, you would think that he would be more in that space. Because a lot of times that thought process comes from people who have been in light. I think in his own way, he got there. I don't know how he got there, but, and also, you know, being a performer puts you in that place. If you've ever been on a stage in front of thousands of people, it's an automatic, I mean, you're, you're dancing with energy. That's what you're doing as a performer. And I think his experiences in the late sixties with LSD, I think he did have 
some real potent experiences of oneness. And really, it did change him a lot. I think his more detached views about the species, you know, I used to say to people that he was like those Zen masters that come and kind of hit you with the stick to wake you up while you're while you're meditating. And, and I do kind of see him in that way, too. I think he was also very, because of the way he approached the topics, he, he wasn't approaching it the same kind of detachment or the same kind of language that you would get from a person who is, you know, he, he wasn't interested in teaching it that way, maybe. And, and he and I never really had these conversations. So, you know, I, I too sit and ponder these things. And I think he was struggling with language because he didn't have a, a real proper container for it or or language for it because he was kind of pioneering and venturing out in those spaces on his own and he was such a he was such a rationalist too that i think maybe that leap was kind of harder for him in some ways because i'm around comedians the greatest ones can turn a thought very very fast so maybe that was something he was questioning within himself. You know, he wanted to go there and he's like, hey, this is what I believe, but I'm afraid to commit fully or something. You know, I think that is the precipice for a lot of us when we get to that place, right? You have to kind of, it's a blind leap of faith mm -hmm. to that next kind of perspective, right? I, I just don't know. I would, I would have loved to have more of these conversations with him and to have been better prepared myself to have those conversations with him. When he was alive. You know, it's interesting. I mean, since I was a little girl, he called me a wise soul and an old soul and the shaman of the family. And, you know, he always saw that, you know, and, and that's what kind of generations do, right? Is we, we move the edges out further than our parents. That's the hope of generations, at least. And I think he was really pleased that I was on that path myself. What have you tapped into personally? Is it reading people? You know, when I talked about the Reiki thing, I've been told I'm a clairsentient. Right. Have you ever, you ever heard of a clairsentient? I, I have. Recently, I, I came across that term. Yeah. I mean, I think I can read a room. I can, you know, I mean, I can feel, you know, I mean, it's when you're a kid and your job is to kind of check out who's crazy in the house. <laughs> yeah. You learn to do this stuff. Um, and like I was saying, you know, I just, I just feel things in my body and I, I've learned to understand what those mean now and just kind of share them with whoever, you know, if, if it's a conversation that's open and especially in my professional conversations with clients and things like that, um, I've learned, I've really learned to trust my intuition and it's a big part of my creative life too. It really shapes how I work creatively and what to move towards. And even in my writing, I know my writing is going well when I can feel it in my body in a certain way. Um, I pay attention to synchronicities. You know, I can, I, I can read people pretty well, you know, and I'm a very articulate person. So I can articulate sometimes things that they don't even, that they are feeling, but they, they themselves don't know how to articulate. And I think that's, that's what makes me a a powerful guide for people who are looking for their kind of true north, their authentic path, because I can be a mirror to them and say, you know, this is what I'm sensing. Is this is this real and true for you? And that can give people a place to be like, oh, my God, yes, that's exactly what it feels like or sounds like. Or, I, you know, I wouldn't be able to put words to it, but that fits, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's how I use it both in my personal and professional life. And it's also tricky because because of the anxiety and the depression and kind of the trauma in my early life, I too get a lot of somatic sensations that are off point, that are 
kind of part of the false narrative that are the part of it that, you know, sees boogeymen where there are no boogeymen, right? So always having to check in kind of reality testing, you know, that's how one gets through panic attack syndrome is you have to reality test. I'm okay. I'm breathing. I'm not having a heart attack. There's no tigers and lions and bears here to kill me. I think part of my, because I am so sensitive and had so much uh, time with my own somatic extreme experiences, I've learned to just accept that that's part of who I am and that's part of the human process. And some of us have more access to that than others. When you were going through this as a kid, did you internalize everything? Tried to figure it out for yourself? Oh yeah, I never asked for help. I never asked what was going on. I, I was very, what they call parentified very early. I tried to solve problems. I tried to be the peacekeeper between my parents. I never shared my own pain or suffering. I swallowed it all. You're always trying to help people yep. and not worry always, about yourself. Always trying to rescue, fix, heal, repair because thinking that if I don't do that, I'm sunk also. So uh, that's that, and that's a habit and a, a narrative, uh, speaking of it that way, that even just in this last year, I've really, really dropped even more, like really seeing clearly how even in, in interpersonal relationships, friendships and things like that, that, how that still runs me in some ways and really mm-hmm. trying to create some healthier boundaries around that myself. I grew up very similar in a very inter- similar household and internalized everything. But sometimes it's almost like I I can't, I don't even want to be around people. You you know what I mean? Because you're picking, you know, you're you're picking up something from him. You're like, yeah, he's a friend, but damn, every time I talk to him, it's this one damn thing. It bothers me. You know, you really have to create some practices for yourself around detaching from other people's journeys and trusting that you may get a hit on it and something may make you uncomfortable, but it's not your job to carry it. Um, And you can even in some kind of imaginal way, hand it back to them. Um, And maybe their personality and ego self can't manage it. And that's why it's leaking out towards you. I always believe there's some kind of fully whole, healed, wise version of ourselves within this right sense of self and that you can hand it back to that aspect of them and say like hey wise mother father figure or whatever it is you know i know you're in there you're you know you're you're, you might be in the person's unconscious but i'm gonna i'm handing this back to you i'm not here to tend it it's not my job to do that and until this person is capable of doing that you know it's it's getting in my way and if it really gets an you know i really feel that it's in some ways, you know, depending on how, how noisy it is, you can kind of see who, which people are kind of energy vampires and which people aren't, you know, and it makes you make smarter decisions about who you surround yourself with too. There's more distraction. I call it fractional data, fragmented people. You know, when your dad was a comedian, right? Comedians were more celebrated. They were more presented to the world. So I couldn't imagine how much more pressure that was then because of how they celebrated those comedians. Yes. So now there's less celebration and you have all these fragments of different human beings that are put together. And I'm always wanting to help. First of all, how do you get a narrative across to somebody? And how do we how do we get a message? You know, I've been told lead by example. You know, how do you how do you help that problem? You know, I think there's a couple of different ways is leading by example, I think is a really very important way just being a role model of how to be a person who's trying to actively and consciously 
integrate themselves and 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 heal heal the the broken parts and and walk through the world with boundaries and level-headedness and groundedness things like that i think that's really important and i think also owning who you know you are which it sounds like you certainly you you do that you know you know you're an empath you know you've got this ability you i think it's important to just trust your own truth and and walk your path and and own it and then if you want to be of service in some way i think you need to learn to compartmentalize it that service in some way so it's not 24/7 always bombarding you but doing it in some ways where you you know you offer some sort of path or some connection with people where you can have powerful conversations or powerful uh you know healings or whatever it is that one does but you're also feeding yourself you know that you 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 need to put your oxygen mask on first always and and that's important i grew up with an example of a father who was an artist and artists to some degrees are narcissistic you know they they have no trouble putting their mask on first <laughs> and yet my dad was very empathic and was very connected to my mom and i and very worried about my mother's drinking and worried about my mental state and and all of that of course and was a was a dad but he was also an artist and you know his work kind of consumed him in some ways to the point where he ignored his own body and his own needs and things like that so i had that example as one parent who was very artistic and then my mother was the other example who even you know whether she was sober or not sober but but all phases of her life she was a person who who always gave to others who were suffering we're always trying to be the best friend the therapist the counselor too and she never put her oxygen mask on first and it really you know between the the drugs and the alcohol and that kind of behavior i really feel it led to her early her early death you know she never really took care of herself and never saying no to broken people was impossible to her i try to kind of take but you know i think we try to learn from what our parents do or other role models when we were kids to figure out kind of a center lane for that you know and so i've been adamant as a woman to really make sure that i've learned how to to create healthier boundaries for myself than my mother had and i also am an artist and i want to pursue my art but i don't want to do it to the point where it's a detriment to my interpersonal skills and my interpersonal friendships like my dad had very few friends in his life he was friendly with people he had a few deep 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 friendships with people but he was not the socialite guy who would go out with comedians and all that you know he wasn't hanging out with people he didn't have a buddy he didn't have groups of people he hung with you know so he was on this other extreme whereas my mother was a total social butterfly so you know you're trying to find kind of the middle way right the middle path and part of that is enough selfishness <laughs> and enough service and really getting that um it's not your job to fix the world it is your job to show up and be kind and to be aware and it is your job to use your gifts for good in the world uh but not at the detriment of your mental or physical health what do you think about if people could eliminate unconscious bias well yeah it'd be great <laughs> but right? john the unconscious is is huge you eliminate one unconscious bias there's always going to be something else in there but of course i mean i think in general but i think in order to function in the world you know that's why we have ego healthy ego is important 
healthy ego means I see the world a certain way and I believe in a certain thing and up is down or up is up and down is down or whatever it is. So we're always going to be limited because if we didn't have any, if, if our unconscious was completely open to us, it, it is a form of psychosis. Our, 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 we cannot process that much information. It all blurs together. And, you know, even those who practice unitive states and high meditation states and have, you know, moments of Satori or enlightenment or whatever you want to call that experience, you know, that in itself is a limited way of seeing also. I mean, it holds everything, but it's still a perspective. It's the unitive perspective. If you could put emotions out front and see it for what it is and know how to manage that, I think that changes the game. Because uh, yeah, people th- are not thinking that way. Yeah, I think if people were more transparent about their emotions or their thoughts, and we mm-hmm. could share those in in the space between us, I think transparency is is such a good disinfectant, right? It's like, oh, but I think, unfortunately, <laughs> majority of the people on this planet have no ability to even know what they're feeling or thinking. But that level of consciousness and awareness is not available and is not taught and it is not encouraged in our cultures, you know, and I think some people are born with it, more of a tendency to do that uh, than others. And certainly others grow up into it and others find paths, whether it's therapy or healing or, you know, religion or whatever kind of expanded self-awareness they do. I don't think most people are hardwired for that. I think most people are hardwired for this pretty narrow existence. And and I think that's like ultimately the conclusion my father came to. And his conclusion about that conclusion was that, you know, we're doomed as a species because the species only has so much capability for self-awareness. Because there's a simple little thing, like when I go into a meeting and I see some younger people and, and look how they respond to things. Like if you just looked at the simple thing of how you question yourself. So if someone is approached with something that they haven't done before, they don't, they haven't had that experience, but it fits within their space. So usually the thought process says, can I succeed? Will I succeed? Is this the right thing for me? Am I making the right choice? Instead of saying, hey, I will succeed. This is the right choice. And this is the thing for me. Right. So like if you could identify that and how you respond just as simple as something as simple as that, as powerful your mind is, that could help a lot of people. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, I know in the last hundred years, I mean, you're, you're talking about the power of positive thinking is ultimately what you're talking about. And I think a lot of people have studied mindset, you know, ever since Freud and Jung talked about the unconscious you know, people have studied the power of unconscious thinking and unconscious framing of one situation. And that it is a belief that literally is if you make it into a positive statement and really step into owning it, it does change your reality. It changes what's possible for you. If you don't believe something is possible, it's really hard to get there. And you you look at athletes. Athletes have known this for the last, what, 30 years. They've been using sports psychologists. This is all sports psychologists do is help athletes fight back the tendency to stop believing in in who they are and what they're capable of. Yeah, I think it's a really, really important thing. And wouldn't it be amazing to teach this in, in educational systems to kids? I mean, you know, teach all the other things too, because it helps build an intellect and an understanding of 
rational thinking and critical thought, and there's a lot less of that being taught these days. But on top of the critical thinking to also to learn about mindset and the power of thought and the power of believing in one's self, boy, sure, it would it would change things big time. You know, and I think a lot of people do this. I mean, that's, you know, in California, this is kind of in the, starting in the 60s, what the human potential movement was all about was really yeah. understanding that thoughts create reality and that it's not a woo-woo magical thing. It's real. <laughs> it's just Well, it's just like I say this too, is kids up to five years old, they have these amazing imaginations. When they start school, that's when yep. they lose their imagination. That's right. Absolutely. A hundred percent. It's too bad because it is what makes us different from all the other sentient beings on this planet is this amazing imagination and the power of it. And it's why I studied Jungian psychology, because they really honor the imagination and the power of the unconscious and the power of of imagery and 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 all and story and narrative and all of that and the power of the collective unconscious. If unconscious mm. bias is the foundation of psychology, I think they got tired writing the book because if they stopped there, they didn't really dig as deep as they needed to, to dig. What would be the next layer? If you understand where the percentages started and you understand how your sensibilities will respond to things, you're going to have a more uh, defined path, right? Instead of just leaving it as, hey, that's an error. thought, that's an error in your thought process. Mm -hmm. Let's let's figure out these time periods and where percentages of certain things started. Understand that. Understand where it started and why it started. What happened when it started? What was the narrative when it started? Because a lot of times when things start and they don't understand that percentage when it started and you get to down the road a long ways, 100, 200 years, even though people's intentions of trying to fix an issue may have been right when the percentage started, but you can't fall the pattern of people in between and what they believe. So you're talking about some sort of way of looking at the world, the the origin of that way of looking at the world and having to kind of backtrack all the way to the origin of that to really understand where we are where we are now as a a species or a nation or a people or a culture or something. Yeah, because we, you know, people, when they have arguments, they present these absolutes. The absolute may be right, but you can't, you know, blame that on everything in the middle up to that point. I highly recommend a book by a gentleman named Ken Wilber. Are you familiar with him? He's an Uh, integral philosopher and he's got this integral theory and he's got this great book called The Theory of Everything. And he's very much talks about this, that there's different development of human consciousness along the way. And that at any time inside of a culture, you have different groups of people who see things a certain way and they're kind of in a certain developmental place. And this is exactly what he talks about. And that in order for them to get to the next place, they have to let go of a certain unconscious bias in order to do that. And that we as species have been doing this for tens of thousands of years since, you know, man started, but it's certainly a lot in the last 10,000 years, a lot in the last 5,000 years with critical thinking and rational thinking and things like that. I think he would really, really dig this guy and his view because it's, it's, it's basically from what I am understanding that you're saying, this is exactly what he talks about. 
that there is a certain way of seeing in the world and that there's always a percentage of the culture. And, and like take America, for example, there's kind of three basic ways people see the world. There's this one group, which you could call traditional thinking, which is one God, one nation, very, you know, kind of, uh, you could consider them um, traditional uh, red state people you know, good Christians, believe in law and order. Then there's this other group, which is uh, more of a modern kind of a thinking that is about capitalism, that it's about marketplace, that it's not just about, you know, has the foundation of, of the other, but it's it's a different kind of a thinking. It's more about, uh, you know, based on merit and, and, and that kind of thinking. Um, and then there's this progressive thinking that kind of was born in the 60s, was around before that too, which is more about e egalitarian. Everyone's equal. Everyone has a voice. Every type of, you know, diversity is is important in, in that. And those are kind of the three factions that are, that constantly fight each other in America. And, and but he talks about the, um, the mindset behind each of those and what they do believe in and what they don't believe in and what they are able to see and what they're not able to see, what their unconscious bias is and what their values are. Each of them has a different value set. And what's always happening in our quote unquote culture wars in America is that these three sets of values are clashing with each other. And everyone in these, these three sets no one thinks that anyone else has anything good about them. They all, they see everyone else as wrong. But there's a, there's another perspective, which is the integral perspective that moves beyond those three. And there's, there's some before that too, um, that sees that every piece, every section of society has something to offer and has some foundational importance to it that needs to included and transcended but it's not the only opinion in the world. And that's what the integral thinker can do. And I really feel like my dad in a lot of ways is an integral thinker. And there's a lot of good, you know, solid leaders in the world who are integral thinkers. But generally, I think what you're talking about is, is it's potent. It's a potent way to look at the culture and look at, and look at our species. And if we're supposed to be that, that intelligent, if people realize that skin color was environmental, why do we have racism? But you have to believe in science to believe that. So the modern middle one that I talked about believes in science and they see that. They see that it's not this other thing. So, but the, but the traditional people don't necessarily all believe in science. They believe in God and they believe in their religion and they believe in this kind of traditional way of thinking. And therefore they don't see skin color as environmental. They see it as something else that they've been taught. So, you know, that doesn't mean they float they can't float in and out in different areas in their life because it's, it's always more complex than just, you know, black and white, but it's true. Absolutely. I think what you're talking about is, you know, a different level of cognition, a different level of thinking, which opens your mind up more to a broader way of seeing things. And, you know, that's why, you know, rational thought and critical thinking and science is so important because it does open you up to everything. It doesn't solve everything. Certainly, you know, I mean, Genetics is built on science, was built on some form of science, not good. And, it, and science only can do things dealing with the physical realm, right? And things it can measure, right? So it's limited and it's own, it's got its own bias too, obviously. A lot of this stuff just comes to me. I mean, I've never read, I've read one book and half the Bible. A lot of people told me the science was created, slow answers down. It's just an objective path to a particular kind of truth. Then there's the subjective truth, which is mm -hmm. the, the experience that you have or I have in our bodies and in our minds. That's our subjective truth. So it's just making mm -hmm. it's just a different type of truth. Um, but yeah. science 
tends to say that it's the truth, but it's subjective truth. And it is a way of slowing it down so that people can replicate it and say, oh, yeah, gravity does exist. And this is this is how we measure it. You know, so then we can make an airplane. I think we had had some good conversation to teach some people some stuff, you know, where people could listen to this now and 10 years from now and probably learn something. Tell us a little bit about what you're you're putting out. You know, you've got this show on HBO. You have a book. If people are curious about the other work I do uh, in my life coaching world. They can go to my website, kellycarlin.com, and click on the thing that says work with me. They can get on my email list when they get on my website. They'll be able to encounter me and what I do. I generally work with people who are in kind of a transition in their life and looking for a more authentic way, uh, like we, we've been talking today about, you know, really starting to question some of these unconscious biases they have and these constructs and these narratives that get in their way. And so I do a lot of work with people in, in that realm. I have a kind of a shorter course. I have a year long thing. Um, but if you get on my mailing list, you'll, you'll hear about these things. And yeah, right now I don't have another big project on, on the horizon, just doing a little writing and doing a little performing here and there. And, uh, and who knows? But yeah, go check out the documentary. Very proud of it. We won an Emmy this year for nice. best documentary. I think it's a hell of a hell of a great doc. Judd Apatow and Mike Bonfiglio did an amazing job directing it. And I didn't have a lot of hands-on day-to-day in it, but I executive produced it and as and am interviewed in it and tell the story of my family in it. So yeah, I think if people are fans of my dad, they'll they'll love the documentary. Well, Kelly, I think you're uh, definitely the real deal. There's a lot of people out there that are not authentic. If they're talking to the right person, you will know if they're authentic or not. Absolutely. I think, well, John, it was lovely to, to spend some time with you today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Great conversation. Very, very intriguing. Kelly Carlin, check her out, kellycarlin.com. Very intelligent lady. Enjoyed the conversation. And uh, I am John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 